Hello and a very warm welcome to the Institute for Government and this conversation with the European Union's Ambassador to the UK, Joao Valle de Almeida. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. But we've got an awful lot to talk about and I think there will be a lot of great questions. So just a few housekeeping rules before we really get into it. Um, send in your questions throughout the event. Do start now if you'd like. Type your question into the Q&A panel see on the right of your screen and it's great if you add your name and where you're watching from. We're always glad to know that. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Brexit, even though we are post Brexit. Please follow and tweet along and we're going to have a video and sound recording of the event on our website within 24 hours. So thanks again for joining us. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, as I said. The start of the post Brexit relationship between the UK and the EU has been marked by tensions, vaccine distribution, Northern Ireland Protocol, but these are also issues where close cooperation is needed. So how should the UK and the EU work together to implement the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, just ratified in the European Parliament, and the Northern Ireland Protocol? What are the other areas of shared interest ahead of the G7 Summit, which is coming up very fast on us, and the Climate Change Conference at the end of the year? What can be done, um, as the newspapers are putting it often, to improve relations between the EU and the UK after really quite a few scratchy weeks or even months? Well, I'm delighted to be joined by the ambassador. He became the EU ambassador to the UK in February 2020. Uh, we're saying it's not been a quiet time for him. He was previously EU ambassador to the United Nations and the first EU ambassador to the United States beginning in, in 2010, and he's also had very senior posts in the European Commission, including as the Chef de Cabinet for European Commission President Barroso. So, Ambassador, a very warm welcome to the Institute. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be with you and all the, those in the, in the audience. <clears throat> let's, look, let's kick off with one of the most obvious questions about the relationship. At the start of this year, the UK government decided not to grant you full diplomatic status. Has it made a difference to your role? Well, I think the decision formally being taken, we are in conversations to, like we do in the diplomatic world, there is a new diplomatic representation, there's a, a negotiation on what we call the establishment agreement. These discussions are still uh, taking place and I, I'm confident that we will find a solution that is in line with international practice. Has it actually made a difference so far, even if um, you're, you're heading, as you, as you hope, to a more optimistic resolution of that? You know, in, in, in the diplomatic world, and, and the UK became a third country, so our relationship with UK is a diplomatic one, like we do with, uh, you know, 140-something other countries in the world where we have ambassadors like me, like I had, I was in, in the US and, and the UN, so it's, it's only normal. So. It's about uh, recognition, it's about respect, it's about, uh, you know, it's it's about the formalities of diplomatic life and uh, that's uh, that's an important aspect. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can soon uh, come to an understanding on how to uh, organize this uh, diplomatic side of our relationship. And uh, once that is the case, we'll be even in a better position to contribute to a, a constructive relationship. An immensely diplomatic answer, if I may say so. How would you, if you take a step back from this very turbulent year and a bit in which you've uh, you've been imposed, the year not only uh, of, of Brexit but of coronavirus, how would you characterise the state of the UK-EU relationship? 
Well, I think the year as far as 2020 and part of 21 is concerned, it's been absolutely atypical for all the reasons you mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, the pandemic, the, the global recession, but also uh, a very unique situation. If, if we wait, if we sort of stop a little bit, a few minutes and think how unique this situation is. You know, it's the first country that left the European Union after almost half a century of very close relationship. It's the first time that we uh, were asked to negotiate uh, towards divergence rather than towards convergence, which is what we normally do in the European Union through different waves of, of enlargement. Uh, and, uh, and at the end of the day, we uh, the result is an agreement that is by far the most ambitious, the most comprehensive, uh, the widest agreement we have, we have with any other country. And I think this is true for the United Kingdom as well. And we did all this in a, in, in, in a few years of, of, of relative, relative volatility in terms of the process, uh, a very complex negotiation. Uh, but I, I was happy to see uh, by Christmas time that we, we had been able to not only agree that the terms of the divorce, the withdrawal agreement, but also uh, the, 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 the terms of engagement for the future uh, under the trade and cooperation agreement. I think this is not a, a minor uh, achievement. And today, and I'm very happy to uh, to have this conversation on the exact day in which the European Parliament has voted overwhelmingly mm -hmm. uh, in favour of the TCA. So I believe we are starting a new a new phase right now. But if I look at the you know the first hundred years, uh, hundred days. I'm sorry, the first hundred days of this <laughs> well, relationship. We, yeah. uh, we won't have time for the one hundred years. But if I look at the uh, first one hundred days of this post-Brexit relationship since January, what what, what do I see? I see, first of all, uh, and and some are overlooking that aspect. Uh, I see an abrupt transition uh, because we had, uh, of course, uh, an institutional Brexit in 2020, but the real economic Brexit only happened on the 1st of January. And the agreement was achieved on Christmas Eve. So it's exactly one week between achieving the agreement and implementing it. So. It's only normal that such an abrupt transition, transition uh, causes uh, difficulties in terms of, of uh, implementing it. And mm -hmm. the other aspect that I would say characterizes the first 100 days is the adaptation, mm -hmm. the, the need to adapt. And that's valid for administrations, that's valid for business, that's mm -hmm. valid for citizens. Uh, you know, we had to adapt to uh, to a very different situation that maybe some people underestimate. Mm. Uh, and then the third aspect that I would say is that on a number of sensitive files, there was some tension, let's be clear, on, on the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, on, on vaccines, which has nothing to do with Brexit, but still is part of our bilateral relations, and a few other irritants uh, that uh, all this created a, a certain degree of tension uh, it lowered the level of trust, uh, created some here and there some acrimony in, the, in our relationship, uh, even led us ourselves to, to legal action against uh, against the United Kingdom. Uh, so uh, I think this is basically what characterized these first 100 days, an abrupt transition uh, requiring very swift adaptation. A few sensitive sensitive files that created some tension. I hope that from today and from this, you know, beginning of May, 
we can enter a second period of 100 days until I'd say summer break, uh, where I hope we can we can move on and we can change the mindset and we can start looking for a more constructive uh, atmosphere. Okay, well, uh, thank you for that. I want to come on to some of those points about implementation and about the next phase, if you like. So if you just take, as, as you've referred to, the European Parliament voting uh, big majority um, for the trade and cooperation agreement, what difference does that vote make? It makes the whole difference in terms of democratic support, democratic scrutiny uh, uh, from the European Parliament. On our side, you had your own ratification in the UK uh, some months ago, but it's very important to complete the democratic pillar, which is composed, of course, of the Parliament and the Council. And I hope that in the, uh, until the end of the week, the Council will formalise uh, the Member States Agreement and ratification of the deal and from and from the 1st of May it will be fully fully enforced. It makes a lot of difference in terms of, of the, the tools and the mechanisms uh, to manage this relationship. Uh, you know, you've seen, uh, you know, dozens of committees and subcommittees and specialized working groups uh, with a joint partnership council on, on top of it. We hope that that joint partnership council will meet soon uh, because that's a signal of a uh, 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 working relationship. So uh, uh, that's that's a main difference. The diplomat, the, the democratic uh, accountability and endorsement, the the operationality of the of the, mm. of the deal uh, through all the mechanisms and tools. I think that will make a big difference to the way we can work together. Because uh, be under no doubt, this is a relationship that, uh, because of its intensity, because of its uh, that, uh, because of its uh, complexity, uh, will require a lot of meetings, a lot of talking, a lot of exchanges uh, 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 across the channel, and uh, the, 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 the infrastructure, the institutional infrastructure created by, by the TCA, I think will provide the platform for people to get uh, to, uh, you know, solutions. Yeah. Because one of the things that we saw, you saw in the first quarter was some unilateral decisions taken by the United Kingdom uh, that are not part of the, let's say, the rules of the game. In, in I, I think that if we had up and running all the, the, the infrastructure of the deal, maybe we could have prevented that. And I certainly hope that that will not be repeated in the future. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And I, I agree with the, 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 the two um, facets that you've singled out from, uh, from this vote, the democratic point, and then also the point about all the structures that are now going to be in place, all the, all the, all the meetings, all the committees and so on, um, as, the, as the IFG has been writing, that those things are now there to manage the relationship. But um, committees and things aside, there, there is the possibility now that the UK begins to diverge in some ways. From, from the EU. Where is the EU particularly looking and where is it most concerned? I think uh, you, 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 can, you can conclude from the whole discussion about level playing field during the negotiations where our main, main concerns are. But let me say, uh, tell you something also about my experience in the first quarter. I've been talking to business people, to different branches of industry, for instance, manufacturing, the food and drink, uh, agriculture uh, and beyond. And, uh, and I always ask them, so how, how, how much do you think Britain should diverge and how much do you wish Britain to diverge? And so far, at least, but that's an, maybe an empirical evidence uh, on the basis of a, of a few, although important contacts, 
What I've got back is uh, we don't seek a profound divergence because we are so much linked to your market that we understand that uh, a, a, a too big a divergence will will create more problems than we would solve. But this is just my impression from what we've seen. In any case, one of the issues for, for the, the Partnership Council, for the different committees that we'll have to establish, is to look at those aspects. You know, we'll be looking at that. We'll be watching. My delegation is part of the, of the system of you know, uh, observing and, and monitoring uh, the relationship. We'll be looking at all that. Uh, the question is to be able to, when we spot, identify or anticipate an area of diversions that can create, uh, you know, turbulence in our relationship, is to immediately address it in the mechanisms that we have in the in the in the treaty, in the agreement. And that's another reason why it is important to to have this. The capacity to, through dialogue, through exchange of information, address the situations as they come. And many situations will will come to the table, that's for sure, because this relationship is so close and so intense uh, that inevitably we'll have to deal with a number of issues. And so complicated. Um, I'm thinking of just, again, one of the most recent uh, disputes, uh, not the biggest on the whole um, um, uh, radar of everything that has um, uh, you know has been argued over on this, but uh, that, that um, France in particular concerned about small fishing boats not 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 having access and and threatening um, various officials and politicians commenting of, of oh we'll hit back at the city of London. Um, there's a very um, severe quality to that, if you like, um, a sense of of reactions. Uh, perhaps not always being proportional. Do you do you have confidence that all these committees and structures can scoop up all these points of friction? I think well, the, maybe one of the main challenges we have is to manage uh, manage the, the, uh, the this relationship in a way that produces solutions and not exacerbates problems. And uh, and uh, you know the number of committees that are about to be set up and now we can really create them because the, the treaty has been fully ratified, they will address these issues. Experts will be meeting, people that know the files, people that know uh, in depth what is about and, uh, and I think this will largely contribute to sort of de-dramatize the situations. But there will be, I mean, no doubt about that, there will be situations more critical and more, more intense where uh, where there has to be a political management and uh, but you know that's that's what you have when you have such a an ambitious agreement and such an interconnectedness interdependence uh, mm. between between our economies on the issue of of um, of one sector being impacted by the other that's part of the construction of the tca as you well know uh, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's uh, a tension that we will have to Mm. That we'll have to manage as well. Uh, our our attitude, if I may say so, is one of uh, of uh, you know being pragmatic, being being uh, flexible in trying to find solutions for those problems. With one caveat, we are not about to renegotiate uh, treaties that we've just approved. This one today in the Parliament, uh, the withdrawal agreement some months ago. Uh, no, it's not about renegotiation, but it's about finding together, together, not unilaterally, but together, solutions for problems that will arise, for difficulties that maybe are not 
uh, inevitable uh, uh, in, in a consensual and constructive uh, approach. Mm. That's that's uh, uh, on our side, our attitude. And I believe that once this, this machinery is really working, things will, will run smoother than in this phase, which is a little bit of an atypical phase where the treaty uh, and the agreement is in fact already in force provisionally, but the mechanisms to manage it are not yet there. All right. So, so I hear, you have, you have I this. Hear what you're saying, and I I hear the um the faith um which I understand in the in the mechanisms getting going, the ways of talking to each other and so on, and that it's still early days. But let me ask you about one of the most controversial points, which is the Northern Ireland Protocol, and I can see a lot of the questions coming in already are about that. Um, I'll just pick one before I go properly to questions. But John John Newham asking is the Northern Ireland Protocol sustainable. There is growing opposition to the protocol in Northern Ireland, a feeling that this is not just teething troubles, um, but this is something um, that one whole community there feels it may find very, very difficult to live with. How are the EU and the UK going to uh, reach, reach a, a solution on this? Well, let me say from start that I am extremely attentive to the situation in Northern Ireland. I observe it from, from London because we don't have an office in Northern Ireland. Uh, I observe it from here. Brussels is extremely attentive because the first reason being that we are totally committed to the success of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. We were there from the beginning, I would say even from before the beginning of it. Uh, we have been sponsors, we have been supporters of it. We still are financially supporting large programs in Northern Ireland uh, uh, towards reconciliation uh, and peace building in, inside, the, inside Northern Ireland between the two communities. So we are absolutely committed to the success of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. And so this is top of our concern. Uh, but I want to be very clear about one point. The protocol is not the problem. The problem is Brexit and the shape of Brexit and the impact it had on Northern Ireland. Let's be clear about that. Right, we knew, everybody knew. Everybody knew from the from from the referendum and from the choices made to leave the single market and the customs union that Northern Ireland will be the most difficult, the most intricate issue to be solved. And that's why it took so long, and you remember very well the different stages of the negotiation around around the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. It was complex. It's, it was like squaring a circle. But Ambassador, uh, you're talking about it as if it is solved. And yet the, no, the protocol is discomfort with it. Brexit is Pro done. Uh, the if, protocol if Brexit is done. done. The protocol, yeah. the protocol is British law and EU law, and it needs to be implemented. Now, how do we implement the protocol with a flexible and constructive spirit, but within the limits of the protocol? Because the question is very uh, clear, Broadway. Who has an alternative to the protocol? No one has put on the table an alternative to the protocol because there isn't. If there was one, we would have identified it between Europeans and Brits and British uh, colleagues during the negotiations. There is no alternative. So the protocol is the only solution that was found for the problem created by Brexit in Northern Ireland. What we need to do now, and we are absolutely determined to do that, is to, with a, spirit, with a constructive spirit, finding solutions for the real problems that people feel there and I I'm enormous I have enormous respect for those uh, who, who feel uh, problems that may arise out of this situation but I also believe that the protocol contains 
solutions for those problems if it is fully and properly implemented. So we are working very well yes, in yes. recent weeks uh, with, uh, we have been working very well with our British friends uh, in trying to find exactly those, those solutions. And I'm confident that in the, in the spirit of dialogue, but also reaching out to, to the Northern Ireland uh, uh, civil society, to business people, to the political world, we can find those solutions. I'm, I'm hopeful that that is possible within the limits of the let, problem. May, may I just ask you, have you been to Northern Ireland? Yes. Yeah. When did you go there? September last hmm. year, when COVID allowed. I yeah. used no, no, my, first, my first trip out of London, uh, out of Great Britain, uh, even out of England, I would say, yeah, out of England. I went first to Northern Ireland and then to Wales. So that was my first visit. I went to Belfast, to Derry, Londonderry, uh, elsewhere in the, in the in the territory. I met all the political forces. So I and I keep in touch from distance here with Northern Ireland. And so then I'm, I'm sure you've heard face to face um, one of the points that people make, which is uh, that um, should the EU not show some flexibility? We are showing flexibility. Given, given, the, 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 given the discomfort that it is Absolutely. causing. Absolutely. We are showing flexibility. I'm telling you, we are showing flexibility. But the solution for the problems in Northern Ireland is not around the protocol, is not unilateral action by the British government, as they did in March, which led to our legal action. The solution is us working together, as we are now, and I'm very happy to acknowledge that in the last few weeks, a technical level, very good work done by our specialists, our experts, at political level between Vice President Maruszewskiewicz and Lord Frost, there has to be a qualitative change in the atmosphere, uh, which I'm sure will lead to uh, practical, pragmatic solutions within the protocol uh, addressing the, the legitimate concerns that the business people have in, in Northern Ireland. So the, we are flexible, we want to be pragmatic, and we are showing that as, as we speak in, in, in discussions that are taking place. Mm. May I just ask you about one detail, but I, I will come back to this maybe in questions because I can see there are a lot. Um, it's about the question of, of agri-food rules. And really the question is whether the EU would consider anything other than uh, a UK commitment to alignment on those rules in order to re reduce the checks which are causing uh, so much of the friction at the moment? You know, one thing that struck me in my in my visit to Northern Ireland and mostly in our recent times in, in our outreach to civil society and business and even political parties uh, was the consensus uh, around the issue. SPS is the most difficult one. Uh, you know, if we have an alignment of, of legislation on both sides, the problem will be solved. And we, we agree with that. I'm not sure the British government agrees with that. But uh, we we are, as, as we speak, looking at those issues in a very open way and to see if we can find solutions that will reduce the impact mm. of, of uh, that situation. For the moment, as you know, we are pretty much aligned because, uh, you, you know, the UK was a member until until uh, December, uh, there have been few changes in our SPS rules, but not of a huge importance. So basically, there is a, a level playing field to some extent. The question is to see how we can progress into the future. I think we, we need to be, at the same time, loyal and faithful to, uh, to the, the protocol, 
very much uh, aware that we need to protect and preserve the single market of the European Union, but at the same time, uh, you know, flexible and, and constructive enough to try to find solutions for this problem. So on SPS, as much as on, on, on any other issue that is uh, occupying us these days, I can guarantee you that first, we are committed to uh, stability in Northern Ireland, Good Friday Agreement, uh, uh, peace and reconciliation, uh, prosperity for, for Northern Ireland. And secondly, we will look at all possible solutions that are compatible uh, with the, the protocol, but still address and respond to the legitimate concerns of people. Mm. Let me just change subject briefly and talk, talk about vaccines, where um, it was obviously a point of tension between the EU and the UK, now rather cooler. What lesson do you think the EU and the UK should take from this? You know, my, my first lesson is that we should not try to have beauty contests out of a, of a, of a tragic pandemic. Mm. I personally refuse to engage in who is doing better or worse. Uh, uh, the second lesson is that this virus is not, uh, the fight against it is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Uh, let's see where we'll be at the end of the of this race. Um, if I look back a few months ago, at the beginning of the fight against this pandemic, almost a year ago, uh, the debate in the UK was about how, how much is the UK lagging behind Europe in the fight against virus. Now the perception is slightly different. Let's see where we are in, in, in September, uh, but certainly not engaging in, in beauty context. And, and the last lesson is that I think we need to be very humble, very humble regarding this virus. I mean, it surprised us, uh, uh, everybody, no country, not even the biggest, the most powerful countries in the world were capable of really dealing with this virus. So we need to be very humble now with the new variants, with the new uh, changes in the virus. God knows what, what can come down the road. So let's stay humble. Let's be, uh, let's de-dramatize the, the issue. At the same time, uh, uh, we need to protect our taxpayers' money. Uh, mm. That's why we launched uh, uh, recently a legal action against one producer because we thought he was not fulfilling its commitment. So at the same time, we need to be very, very keen on that. And last point on this, uh, we are very much open to the world. We are the biggest exporter of vaccines uh, as we speak and will continue to be. We are the biggest, uh, one of the biggest supporters of COVAX uh, uh, and Gavia uh, to reach out to the developing world. So. Um, I think, you know, with all the, the modesty that we should have in this, I'm, I'm quite proud of, uh, of what the European Union is doing on this front uh, in a situation which is very different from a, 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 a nation state or a, or a single country. Mm. Let me start with the many questions that we've got coming in now. And yes. um, the first one I want to pick up on, uh, on a different area again, on, on foreign policy and of course the background this that formal cooperation on foreign policy was not included in the trade and cooperation agreement though it was in the political direct declaration in in 2019 and we have a question from uh, ufa in our uh, from the un association in denmark saying the eu is talking about a more geopolitical eu the uk is talking about global britain can we be good partners in global issues and foreign policy not only we can i think we should and I think we are condemned to be, if I can say it this way. Uh, and uh, why? Because first of all, we share the same values. And that's that's a great deal of commonality. 
uh, you know, human rights, rule of law, democracy, you name it. Uh, there's no daylight between between the UK and, and, and the European Union. And that's a very solid foundation for cooperation. Secondly, we have a common strategic interest. If you think of some of our uh, global partners, uh, we are very much aligned. Uh, if you think of Russia, if you think of China, if you think of the way we look at Africa, for instance, uh, our concern about the, our neighborhood, our common neighborhood, uh, I think there's a lot of ground. If you think of Iran, where we are doing uh, great work uh, together as we speak to try to salvage uh, the, the, the JCPOA, uh, and, uh, and not to mention the transatlantic uh, community in which we are you know, active partners. If you think of the G7, where uh, uh, between us and, and the UK, uh, it's a large majority of the G7, the G20, uh, and beyond. So, for all these reasons, I think there will be a high degree of cooperation among us. Uh, we propose to the ambassador. Just as you're talking, um, whether you you mentioned Russia, whether the EU actually has an agreed stance on Russia. There's really a big range of attitudes towards Russia within the EU. Um, Germany often seems to be, in a sense, going having its own nuances to that. How would you describe? Um, I think your word, the word nuances. How would you describe the EU's approach to Russia? I think the word nuances is the, a good one. Uh, we have a common line. We have five principles that we, that we on which we stand regarding Russia. We have just adopted a new set of sanctions, as you know, against uh, Russia. We have, have sanctions enforced uh, without interruption since the, the annexation of Crimea. So it's, it's a pretty common sort of a, a, a frame of, of positions that we have with UK, that, with, uh, with Russia. And then you have some nuances, of course, but uh, the European Union is about diversity as much as it is about unity. Thank you for, for that. I've got one with a philosophical touch to it from Peter Barnes saying, would it be possible to have better trading arrangements than those allowed for in the, in the trade and cooperation agreement without jeopardizing the single market? I think for the moment, our focus should be to implement the, the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation. I mean, it's, it's not five years, not five months old yet. It's, it's, a, it's a little baby. Uh, and we have first to take care of the baby, we allow him to grow, uh, to consolidate, to start walking. Uh, 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 and, then, and then, you know, and any relationship is, 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 is a living relationship, is an evolving one. I don't know where we'll be in five years, ten years. I don't know where the European Union will be in 10 years. I don't know how the Union of the United Kingdom will be in 10 years either. So uh, I don't know how the world will be in 10 years. So uh, I don't think we should exclude any evolution. But for the moment, obviously, in my view, in our view, the focus has to be in making this agreement work. And uh, we're very encouraged by the overwhelming support of the European Parliament today. Um, uh, we had a, an overwhelming support from the, the, the British Parliament some months ago. So we have the democratic basis to make this work. Business people are adapting very quickly to the new realities. And I think we now, with the structures that we referred to, uh, the dialogue that we need to have among ourselves, uh, that should be the focus. Implement, make this work to the benefit of business and citizens. And then we'll see how this will evolve. You know, the agreement, and you know it very well, the agreement has a number of elements of evolution. There are review clauses, there are, uh, you know, uh, memorandums of understanding that we still have to conclude. There are areas where 
there are uh, moments where we'll look again at the issues from fisheries to energy and, and others. So there are dynamic elements in the, in the agreement that if need be would allow us to, uh, to improve, to, 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 to make things work better. But for the moment, at the early, early days of this baby, we need to help him uh, or her, if you however you want to call uh, the an analogy. Uh, we have to help this agreement grow and and uh, and produce results. That's that's our focus right now. All right. As I warned you, there's quite a lot of questions on Northern Ireland, and I want to take some of them now. We start with one from Shauna, um, who's saying on the protocol, will the EU the EU be pragmatic on border control checks? Northern Ireland's population is under half a percent of that across the EU, and yet the documentary checks, according to the systems that have been completed so far, would represent a, uh, a fifth of the equivalent documentation right across the EU. So about, you know, the, the burden of checks that has turned out to be in place and whether the EU is going to show any flexibility on that. As I said earlier several times, we are going to show flexibility uh, within the limits of the protocol, uh, within the limits of the protection and preservation of our single market. These are these are the boundaries in which uh, we need to operate. But within those boundaries, uh, as I said, I'm sure, I have no doubts that we will show all the, the possible uh, flexibility to address uh, uh, the situation. Uh, but we also expect on the British side that the number of commitments made will be fully implemented. You know, infrastructures in, in Northern Ireland, access to, uh, to, to a number of, uh, of tools on the British side, uh, you know, a number of areas in which uh, there is still some work to be done. And that's what we're working right now. We're working together to find a sort of a common roadmap uh, to move forward in terms of compliance, in terms of implementation of this agreement. Uh, but again, I'm very encouraged by the, the atmosphere I've been witnessing in the, in the last few weeks. I think this this promises a lot in terms of the results that can be achieved. So I'm 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 hopeful, if not optimistic, about um, about about the outcome. But we should not forget where we come from and okay. why we are here. So I have to say, the majority of the questions I'm getting in on this subject are not um, are not uh, happy with the um, the state of play at the moment. And so I just want to stay on this uh, for, for one moment because it really is arousing a lot of passion. Uh, in the UK, as you will know, it was one from Paul Lever saying your claim that the EU is flexible and constructive on the Northern Ireland Protocol would be disputed by unionists. Even the more moderate of them argue that the degree of intrusiveness and bureaucracy which the EU, EU is insisting on is grossly disproportionate to actual level of threat to its single market. Is your insistence that there can't be any change to that based on a genuine threat assessment? Um, and for example, how can you justify restrictions on pet travel when Great Britain is rabies free? Again, I, 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 to the risk of repeating myself, we are showing and we will show all the possible flexibility. Mm. And that's the what I've been witnessing, listening and reading the reports of the conversations that have taken place in the last few weeks. You can count on that. We are not there to create problems if problems are not uh, necessary to be created, uh, but uh, you, you, we cannot forget the framework in which we, we operate here uh, and the complexity of the situation created by the departure of the UK from, from the single market and the, and the customs union. But again, 
uh, and this has been said in, in recent days by, by my leaders, uh, President von der Leyen and uh, Maro Shevchkovic, who will show uh, flexibility, constructive spirit uh, within uh, the limits of the, the terms of the protocol and the preservation of the, of the single market. But I'm very, we are very open and very attentive and uh, in a listening, uh, very listening, active listening mode mm. to the concerns expressed by everybody in Northern Ireland. And again, we are reaching out to, to civil society, to the business people on a permanent basis, and you will see more of that in the coming weeks. Okay, thank you. Let's leave that subject for the moment. Um, I'm sure there's more coming in. Um, and change tack a bit. One from Peter Wilson-Smith saying, there has not been much progress in reaching a meaningful agreement on financial services. Why? Well, we, uh, I'm happy to acknowledge that we have reached uh, an agreement on a memorandum of understanding on regulatory cooperation uh, in the financial area. This is, this is a very important development which was foreseen in the treaty. We, 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 we managed to have that, uh, that agreement. We are concluding the, the sort of a ratification of that memorandum of understanding. And I hope that very soon this forum of regulatory cooperation can, can proceed. I, I have the, the experience as a former ambassador to the United States of the same kind of body that exists between the EU and, uh, and the United States. And I can tell you that from experience, this has revealed to be a, a very useful tool uh, to bring together regulators, uh, to bring co together the authorities on both sides. Uh, once that forum is, is, is up and running, uh, uh, the union will come back to the issue of equivalence decisions. We have taken two decisions. The UK has taken some as well. Uh, and we will be looking at other areas where uh, equivalence decisions may be uh, appropriate. Okay, thank, thank you very much for that. Um, Again, a different tack, one from James Calder saying, do you think that the EU is likely to react positively to starting discussions on mutual recognition of professional qualifications via the partnership agreement? And what's the EU's view if an individual uh, member state wanted to make a bilateral agreement with the UK to recognise qualifications? I think we need to look at that issue or any other issue against what we have agreed, just agreed, recently agreed in the, in the TCA. Uh, I mean, I, I see too many people in my view uh, jumping to, to renegotiation of, of an agreement that we have just agreed upon. And we took some time and difficult negotiation process to get that deal. Uh, and uh, already, you know, stepping away from that deal and, and uh, you know, let's take the time to make this deal work first. We also have to see uh, in that area or any other where uh, where the competencies lie. As you know, our system is relatively complex Some some areas of competence are union competence, uh, some are member states, some are shared. So we will need to see exactly in each situation there are other areas that have been mentioned where people would wish to go further than the, than the, than the treaty or, or, or be less ambitious than the treaty. Uh, I think I think the rule of the game today is to implement, make this uh, agreement work. Uh, it's only fully, fully ratified and fully enforced uh, on a permanent basis from, from next week. Let's make it work. Let's look at the different aspects from our side. I think, again, you can count on, a, on an open-minded and constructive approach. Okay, thank you. Um, back on the Russia point, the one from David Wilson saying, how will the new sanctions imposed on Russia make any sense while Germany is still intent 
on buying Russian gas? Well, the, 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 the sanctions make sense for the reason they have been adopted uh, on, on basis of human rights, uh, as the previous sanctions make sense because they were based on uh, you know, be unacceptable behavior by, by, by Russia. So uh, you have to judge sanctions on their own merits and the purpose for which they, were, they have been created. Otherwise, as I said earlier, uh, there are uh, common elements of our policy towards Russia. There are uh, nuances in different countries of, of, uh, of uh, you know, approaches that, uh, that re respond to their national needs and, and concerns, and we have to respect that. Okay, we're coming towards the end. Um, uh, uh, lots of uh, questions, but we're going to stop uh, cleanly. Yes, fast. Um, let me just try and squeeze in a, a, a couple more. One from Sandra Katori. Um, where America and Joe Biden fits into this, really? I, I think, uh, again, I, I've been ambassador there and ambassador to Vienna. I lived uh, 99 years in, in the US, so I'm a little bit biased, maybe. Uh, or maybe not. I think I think uh, it makes a lot of sense in the present global context, uh, and you know what I am talking about. In the present global context, that uh, countries like our 27 countries, the UK and the US, uh, try to reach uh, levels of uh, understanding and agreement, and even common action. Uh, we are very uh, very encouraged by uh, this new administration. Um, but there were very early contacts with President Biden, with Secretary Blinken, and other members of the of the cabinet. Uh, there is now a summit being announced for for June, uh, EU-US summit. We have the G7 here, where all of us will be uh, together for the first time with President Biden. I'm very encouraged by 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 all this. I'm encouraged by the decisions taken by the American administration regarding climate change or uh, JCPOA, just to give two examples where they come back to a sort of a mainstream, which is very much in line with our positions. And I see also our British friends uh, very much on the same platform. So uh, I have no reason not to doubt that there is scope, potential, and, and in fact need for uh, good cooperation among the, the three of us, if you want, either bilaterally or trilaterally or multilaterally. Uh, for instance, if you take multilateral uh, dimension, I mean, there is a multilateralism is, is being challenged uh, and we need to preserve the system that we help to, to build. Uh, you know, I hope it will, for instance, translate into the re-election of the President Secretary General of the United Nations who is a European Union citizen, uh, uh, just an example, but also the reform of WTO, which is very urgent, or WHO, uh, which is equally important. Uh, and I think on, on many of, if not all of these areas, we can find a, a, a good platform across across the Atlantic. And in a new format, of course, the UK is no longer a member, but uh, I, I'm sure we can find ways to make this a very productive uh, multiple relationship. Okay, I'm going to try and let me ask one quickly from Simon Sweeney of whether you think policing, intelligence and data exchange on security have been damaged. Well, I, I think that in, in many areas, if not all areas, we were better together than separate uh, in terms of effectiveness and efficiency of our efforts. But uh, the, 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 the agreement went a, a long way in that in that direction. And I think, again, uh, it, it, it implementing it, but also the, the the dynamics of our dialogues around the implementation of the agreement 
uh, will be very useful uh, in terms of the quality of our cooperation. So uh, again, I, I believe that once we start, uh, you know, managing properly managing this uh, structure that we have created on paper, and then it becomes a reality on the ground, and 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 I think it will even change the atmosphere and have people, you know, approach it in a, in a slightly more practical way, more constructive way. The more, uh, more, uh, you know, more minded about the facts than about the rhetoric. Okay, thank you. And I'm going to squeeze in a final one, uh, just on the news of the past hour or so that Arlene Foster stepping down and David Martin says, "Do you accept that this uh, resignation is likely to bring new strains um, to the trade and cooperation agreement?" Well, I don't want to interfere in uh, internal affairs of the United Kingdom or the United of uh, Northern Ireland and even the less so internal matters of the DUP. Uh, we have had a good relationship, a good dialogue with Arlene Foster uh, in different uh, moments. She has been part of uh, many meetings of where we discussed the protocol in the joint committee where she, she's part of and also listened to. And we have, I've had good contacts with the DUP uh, leadership and, and their different representatives. So we'll continue to talk to DUP, whoever the leader is. Okay, thank you for that. Well, I promised we would end at quarter past and we will. Thank you, there's a lot of terrific questions. Catherine in Scotland, thank you very much. Uh, you put eloquently one of the points about the um, uh, the, the management of the border. Um, we uh, we couldn't keep going back and back over that territory, but Ambassador, I can tell you that's where a, a lot of the heat and the um, of, of the questions coming in has been, and as you can tell, a lot of the attention in the UK. Everyone... Yeah, but it's only normal, you know, uh, yeah. Brown, right? it, it's only, I don't think it does anything uh, strange or special, it's only normal. It's part of the process of, of building something new, of squaring a circle, I was saying, in Northern Ireland. It's complex, it's difficult, it's it's sensitive. We are very much aware of that. We don't want to create problems where we don't need to create problems, but you have to understand that we have to manage the situation which was not created by us, but there's an impact in our own uh, single market, so we need to look at that. But our main purpose remains uh, peace uh, and reconciliation, stability and prosperity in Northern Ireland. Whatever we can do to contribute to that, we will do. Ambassador, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My pleasure.